0: Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted cover I'm John Perry. And today we are
1: asking the question, who are the top 10 living futurists? So we've attempted to assemble a list, which is obviously a subjective endeavor that may cause disagreement among our listeners, but uh, we're going to attempt it anyways.
0: Right. Well, we sat down uh, earlier this week and we tried to come up with a list of the 10 futurists who are alive today who are sort of the source of the most interesting or biggest ideas. We didn't have a really consistent metric by which to judge these futurists. So it was a highly personal list of people who are influential to us or who have ideas that we
1: like talking about. In some cases, they're big popularizers. In some cases, they have some major idea that is frequently cited or discussed. Um, right. Some of so, these people
0: have just sort of carved out a niche for themselves. Others have kind of originated something.
1: And uh, we're not going to do them in any uh, particular order. So these aren't ranked, right? These are just uh, a top 10 uh, in general. And we did say, yes, they have to be living. They have to be alive. So there's many people that didn't make the cut for that reason. Uh, yes. So obviously, you know, Buckminster Fuller is not on this list. Right.
0: Or, yeah. You won't find Tesla on this list or, um, you know, anybody who's dead. Uh, we We decided to just narrow our focus to people who are alive today
1: james martin just barely missed the cut yeah we i
0: i was about to put him on and then i realized that he died in 2013 so sadly
1: so some of these people need to get on curing death faster (laughs) right and then there'd be more futurists. then we'd have to do top 20
0: right well so we don't lose any more futurists
1: right Okay, so uh, number one, we'll just get into it, right? So this one may be not a surprise. This is
0: going to be the most obvious one, but we thought we'd start here because, of course, if you're going to make a list of top 10 futurists, you have to have Ray Kurzweil on that
1: list. Although you could could certainly argue against him for the reason that he's not so much an originator of new ideas as he is just uh, a popularizer and somebody who stitches other people's ideas together. But, I mean, he's... He's huge for doing that. I mean, he's so many people's entry point into these topics.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, he's the most popular, most popularizer, most well-known futurist uh, around. And certainly uh, the one with the biggest profile with regard to the kinds of uh, futurist ideas that you and I are most interested in, like accelerating returns and sort of uh, increasing technological progress. Um, Now, he's not necessarily the person who came up with any of those things. uh, As you mentioned, He borrows a lot of his ideas from different people, and he cites who he takes them from. Uh, So you can find them in his books. Uh, He talks a lot about the ideas of Hans Moravec, and he talks about Werner Vinci's ideas and some other people's ideas, too. But he did do a great job of stitching together a lot of different niche uh, visions into a cohesive vision. Uh, that he then sold to people in a series of books that really are um, very, I think, important and enlightening. If you if you haven't done much uh, thinking about the future before, and
1: has have totally influenced the way this discussion has gone, for better or for worse. I mean, I think you can certainly criticize Absolutely. the particular package that he put together, which right. you know included these vaguely religious terms like spiritual machines and the singularity is near.
0: Right. That packaging has, you know, the effect of being really, like, alluring, I think, but it also, it maybe obscures some of the actual um, argumentation that's going on. I think it leads
1: to some of people's criticisms, people like Jaron Lanier, who try to call this stuff some sort of new. Techno utopian religion. Right, or or
0: even uh, Cory Doctorow calls it Rapture of the Nerds. Right, I think that those criticisms
1: come a lot from the particular selling strategy that Kurzweil adopted, which does feel vaguely religious. So there's even the shiny silver covers and the.
0: Right, right. And just to sort of mention a little bit about Kurzweil, I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast know all about him, but he is sort of somebody who comes from a sales world. He ran a bunch of companies, he was an innovator and engineer himself. For many years, um, building products that he was trying to sell to people like uh, speech readers and synthesizers and things of that nature. Um, Of course, uh, nowadays, he's not so much of an active futurist. He uh, is like an engineering manager at Google. They're working on uh, natural language processing over there at Google. Right. His last Um, book
1: was less of a work of futurism and more of like a sort of practical bit of speculation about how to uh, build a mind inside of a machine,
0: right? It's it's called How to Build a Brain, but it's really basically about deep learning strategies, yeah. right? about how to do you know certain kinds of uh, AGI strategies that that they're presumably working on at Google, I suppose. Yeah, but his
1: book, The Singularity is Near, puts together a ton of these issues uh, in a comprehensive fashion in a way that really no one else has done. There's a ton yeah. of graphs, and again, I you know Hans Moravec is someone who we almost put in this spot, I think, instead because so many of Ray Kurzweil's ideas, this sort of overall trend to history that, you know, takes Moore's law and extrapolates it, you know, even farther back in time is something that, you know, Hans Moravec wrote about perhaps before Ray Kurzweil.
0: Right. And Kurzweil cites Moravec as being uh, an influence there. But I think, you know, whereas
1: Moravec is well known for that term Moravec's paradox, I mean, I think, you know, the face of, of most of these futurist ideas is really Ray Kurzweil to a lot of people. And so I think he deserves a spot on the list for that reason.
0: Right. Yeah. So anyway, we'll move on from him. You've probably heard a lot about him before. And somebody who uh, Ray Kurzweil cites a lot and uh, is the source of one of the big things that Kurzweil popularized, the term the singularity, is this uh, science fiction author and uh, former mathematics professor, uh, Werner Vinge. Right. And he's the next person on our list. So, you know, Vinji is less well known, uh, although if you do know about him, you probably know about him from the science fiction books he writes, which are very firmly in that like hard SF category where they're very rigorous about the science and they have a certain uh, pulpiness to them. And I've read some of those books. Uh, and uh, they're interesting. Uh, but he's also uh, a futurist, and he wrote a really influential paper in the early 90s where he uh, sort of coined the term technological singularity. Is that right?
1: Yeah, the, the paper is actually called The Coming Technological Singularity, and uh, it's cited a lot, and it kind of puts all this stuff together. He talks about him being surprised if this wouldn't happen you know, before 2030, so it's pretty committed to its prediction. And uh, he talks about the inevitable... A uh, result of exceeding human intelligence will be a world that is completely unlike the world we know today, hence the term singularity, meaning we can't quite imagine what it will be like. And it will be a world that will basically mark the end of the human era, right? He's very upfront about that. And... uh you know, it's not like nobody discussed that sort of thing, but uh, certainly putting that term to it, putting it in this particular framing, and writing that paper in 1993—I think that's really what earns him a spot on this list. Although his his science fiction is interesting as well.
0: Right. Well, he's had some other influence, but I think that's the main thing: is that he borrowed that term from mathematics, where he had expertise, and applied it to this uh, vision of the future in a way that's been very sticky. Right, and, and now, like you know, the term singularity is bandied about all the time, and sometimes you even get the sense people are using it who don't have any idea what the initial meaning. And a lot of people was. don't like that term, including myself like sometimes.
1: It. But I, yeah, like, I try to avoid it because it, I think it often uh, clouds the issue more than it elucidates things. But it's very sticky. I mean, it's almost it's, it's the, almost the term sometimes that's broadly used to describe this entire genre of thought these days right um, well
0: and people who are sort of transhumanist uh, in in affect are often called singularitarians or something as
1: well these days right and it's there's, that's like Ray Kurzweil's formulation that's where he even sounds more like the religious stuff kind right. of right well, it's
0: it's hard to tell the difference between religion and branding sometimes and I think yeah you know, He's such an enthusiastic brander that he sometimes sounds like he's a you
1: know a cult-like. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Vinji is somebody who I find uh, incredibly fascinating in talks when he gets on to nonfiction uh, topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think on our blog a while back, I, I transcribed some of his recent thoughts on technological unemployment, which I was surprised that he actually had something to say about that. So, you know, he's not... Publishing tons of nonfiction books or papers these days, but uh, generally when I find the opportunity to hear him talk, it seems like he has pretty smart things to say.
0: Yeah, absolutely, he's a real smart guy.
1: Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's move to number three. Okay, next person on the list, Aubrey de Grey.
0: Yeah, Aubrey de Grey. So if you haven't um, heard about him, he's the Methuselah Foundation guy, guy with the big red beard. He is the man with the big red beard who tells you you can live forever, and uh, he's one of my favorite. Talk about branding. Yeah, he's one of my favorite cheerleaders in the movement. He really is, uh, I think, properly understood as a cheerleader. And some people sometimes criticize him, but I think they're criticizing him for maybe wearing airs of a scientist when he's mostly you know, a promoter. And I think if you look at him that way, he's pretty impressive. He's really changed the conversation on fighting aging, I think, to the point where there's now a, a significant, if small, part of the mainstream that discusses you know, anti-aging in a serious way and he did it by just relentlessly talking about it and and just sticking to his uh you know his sen's talking points and like really just hammering home this idea that aging is a disease that can be beat and it's not just a you know a, an inevitable part of life
1: right so SENS, which is his original term that he coined stands for strategies for engineered negligible senescence right and uh, it's
0: basically like a powerpoint it's like a series of like 8 there is seven categories, right? Like big categories. He's,
1: well, yeah, there, there are research categories. Because again, right. he's trying to raise money. He's trying to, you know, he's not necessarily trying to do all the science himself. I mean, no sane person would. No, he's, he's t- not trying
0: to do any of the science. He's, really. trying, he's trying to get, trying to together get money and institutions right yeah. to, to make this happen. It's a
1: roadmap, really. It's saying like, these right. are what we think are, I think it's seven ways that, you know, cells age that seem to be, you know, our best guess as to what's contributing ultimately towards death. Right. So these are the seven avenues that we need to pursue. Right. Right. Um, I think he's also the origin of that term, longevity escape velocity. Right. Or well, um, he
0: certainly has popularized that. He talks about it a lot, which is an
1: interesting concept. Yeah. I mean, this is the quote unquote singularity for age, right? Or the methusilarity is a silly term that I've heard said before. <laughs> that is
0: silly. Uh, but it's you know it's
1: the moment at which you know we're increasing human lifespan at a rate uh, that means we could potentially live forever because if we we're adding one year to human lifespan each year. Right, then that means that... Then
0: people who are alive and healthy at that moment have a reason to believe that they can continue to stay alive and healthy exactly. indefinitely. And so, yeah, that's why it's called escape velocity. It's like you get to a, a, a speed of improvement where you'll outrun death.
1: You don't need to solve every aging problem. You just need to buy yourself another year so you can do another year of research.
0: Right, and solve one more problem and buy yourself another year, etc. cetera. Um, so, yeah, that's a... A really interesting concept, and it makes indefinite life extension seem much more plausible because to me, I mean, I don't, you know, I look at the current rate of progress, uh, and I think it's very fast, and we're doing a lot with genetics and a lot with uh, emerging nanotech and stuff, but uh, it still seems a long way off before we could, you know, get inside cells and cure cancer or something like that. But uh, if it doesn't if you don't need to get there all in one leap, and you can do it uh, handoff by handoff, a small increase in technological capacity by small increase, then it uh, does seem more feasible that we might be able to get uh, Life Extension to work like for ourselves and not just for some far future generation.
1: So yeah, if you have money to donate, look him up. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: If you are sitting on dollars and you don't want to die, and that's pretty much everyone... Who's sitting on dollars? Well, anyway. first
1: finance our movie, <laughs> and then, and then uh, if you don't, yeah. No, what there's is
0: anything <laughs> left over? No, no. Seriously, you should probably give it to him. It'd be more
1: probably more It'd valuable be more and more helpful we, for all of us. We need to stop aging, and we're not spending enough money on it. Uh,
0: yeah, I think he's absolutely right about that.
1: Okay, so uh, so let's move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So the next one is Nick Bostrom, and Nick Bostrom you might have heard of because he writes a lot of papers, and I think he just had a book that came out. Is that right?
1: His book Superintelligence is you know, in some sort of pre-release form, right? I think oh, you, can, okay. you can pre-order it, but... Uh, I've seen
0: some blog posts about it, so maybe the it's getting reviewed or something. Yes. Got it. Um, so he's a really interesting guy who approaches this stuff from like a philosophical point of view, like an academic... Um, I mean, he's really a philosopher.
1: That's his field. And, uh, you know, he's write, written a series of pretty deep academic papers on pretty much every type of futurist science fiction issue that you could imagine. Um,
0: right. So he, like Kurzweil, is another one of these guys who's more of a uh, creator of a cohesive vision than necessarily an originator of that many ideas.
1: Well, I don't know about but, that because on each of these issues, he's attempting, to, I mean, whether or not you agree with his conclusions, attempting to bring a level of philosophical rigor that I think not many other people are doing. I mean, the only only other person that seems to be doing that work is like David Chalmers. Maybe. right.
0: right. The way I was going to say he's majorly different is he's not trying to popularize the ideas so much as to bring them to a level of academic discipline. Right. 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 Yeah. But he, so he's very different in that sense, but he does cover a really wide range of, of things with this great depth. Uh, so he's a really interesting guy to read and very, um, inspiring guy to read.
1: Yeah. And his, you know, we've, Probably directly mentioned his papers throughout this podcast. Yeah, many uh, times. Many times. I mean, uh, we talked not that long ago about uh, whole brain emulation and mind uploading. And uh, he's the author of that roadmap paper that we talked a lot about. Um, Pretty much you name the issue and he's written about it. A lot of his focus too has been on, I mean, if you look at his website, like a large percentage of his papers are addressing existential risk scenarios. So again, if you want to talk about people that are focused on the important stuff, you know, Aubrey de Grey attacking death, and Nick Bostrom's often looking at these much bigger, like deaths of the entire attacking species, species. Yeah, yeah,
0: societal death. Which are you know, these are the big issues, basically. Yeah. Per- personal death and everyone's death are the sure. Yeah, these are the big things, absolutely. And he's uh, somebody who's um, maybe not as a, approachable as a as a writer as some of these other guys, but really has a lot of great ideas and is worth um, fighting through. So the next one's a little bit more of a left field choice. And you may not have heard of this guy if you um, are not uh, older than us, but uh, the next um, person on the list, number five, is Alvin Toffler. And he wrote a book in the 70s called Future Shock that he's pretty well known for, which in a really early time seemed to formulate something very like the accelerating returns idea, this idea of um, progress speeding up and it becoming like sort of overwhelming uh, as a stimulus much earlier than I think other people. He's kind of like a, a Marshall McLuhan or uh, Andy Warhol level thinker, uh, but 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 a futurist and not primarily a social theorist or an artist. And also he's uh, still alive. He's 85 years old and he lives in Bel Air. So he makes a list. So he makes the list. And we just thought that that was pretty cool. And he's he's the oldest guy on the list. We
1: wanted to have some old school people on here. Yeah,
0: we were happy to find somebody who had been working back then who kind of got something right, you know, who wasn't just completely utterly wrong about everything. Yeah, not
1: that there aren't any silly predictions in, in Future Shock, but that the general vision of a world that's changing faster and faster, I think is still compelling and feels like it describes right now. Now, whether or not that leads to a quote unquote state of shock, Uh, is up for debate, but I think you know, you could point to certain cultural anxieties, and I don't think it would be insane to say that some of them have to do with the rapid pace of change or that that's not a direction things could go.
0: I definitely feel shocked sometimes by the rapid pace of change in the world that I inhabit. Now, uh, yeah, I wasn't around in the 70s, so I'm not sure if it was true then or if it was more of like a prescient vision. Uh, maybe this has just been the way the world's been for a while, I don't know, but uh. It does seem like a relevant vision today, and there's maybe better scientific underpinnings for why the world feels like that now. But I think the the basic insight is correct.
1: Okay, um, uh, so the next one on the list, uh, I had to kind of argue for, but I because I think you know some people might disagree with this. Some people
0: might disagree with whether this person is a futurist, I guess, but he's certainly interesting, and we find him compelling.
1: Uh, So number six is Cory Doctorow, who's primarily known as a science fiction author and as an activist, uh, you know, largely in the field of like, you know, technology and ethics and stuff.
0: Uh, Yeah, and specifically in uh, Civil Rights Online, I mean, he worked for EFF for a long time before he was um, as well known as a a novelist. But he does uh, write novels and uh, he does do activism uh, for things like uh, net neutrality and uh, general purpose computing and things like that. But, Open source.
1: You know, I consider him a futurist because to me, the line between futurist and science fiction is very blurry Anyway, It's
0: anyways. thin. Yeah. No, it's admittedly thin. And he has written some things that are that amount to a kind of prediction or at least a kind of policy prediction.
1: Right. So uh, he has a speech that he's refined numerous times. The, the one that I remember most easily that you could look up is uh, called The Coming War on General Computation, I, although I think there might be a newer version of that talk that he's done. And... Well, I I can't necessarily say that's been hugely influential uh, in terms of me seeing people mention it a lot online. I think the ideas in that video are extremely important because it's putting policy and politics and some of these issues back into these future visions, which I think a criticism you can make of somebody's, like, say, Ray Kurzweil, is that it's a very apolitical vision of the future. Um, I mean... You know, Kurzweil admits, well, there are issues to be worked out. He'll, there's always a line like that. Right. You know? But, uh, you know, he has Cord- a lot of faith that they'll be worked out well, which I think is a little bit naive. <laughs> right. Well, and, and he acknowledges that they may or may not go well. But he, the, the point is, he doesn't have much to say about that. I mean, and that's that's fair. That's not his goal. Sure. It's not his area of expertise either. But Doctor, coming from this
0: activist point of view, I think, does think through policy more uh naturally
1: he's comfortable with extrapolating uh things to their logical endpoint and seeing how like you know if we imagine some of these technologies how is intellectual property law going to affect that uh or right you know like you mentioned issues of net neutrality so i think that's important and the other reason that i for me he made this list is because some of his books in particular uh down and out in the magic kingdom right Uh, get referred to a lot, particularly the concept in that book of Woofie. Right, Woofie, which is the the
0: reputational currency that exists in that book, uh, is a really interesting, early fleshed out example of what uh, reputational currency might look like in a a post-scarcity world, where there's basically no reason to have regular money and everything is organized by ad hoc committee, but your reputational currency allows you to do more or less, depending on, on how much you've got of it. Uh, that's a really compelling vision in, that's presented in that book, and it, the book has other interesting uh, sci-fi ideas like uh, like uh, mind uploading and backups and stuff. But those things weren't so original. That
1: Wuffy idea is—I don't know of anything quite like that. Like I'm someone who reads a lot about like alternate currencies, just because that's an issue that's fascinating. <laughs> you're a and
0: huge made. nerd. Well, yeah,
1: <laughs> duh. Uh, but we've but and we've talked about that on um, the podcast uh, before. We did a money episode yeah. and. You know, almost every time I read one of these articles, like there's some sort of nod to that woofy idea. It's just sort of like a cultural touchstone for yeah. other nerds who are discussing these issues. If you're
0: interested in currency, it's one of the very few like really thought through and depicted um visions of what an alternate currency might look like in the future uh, that's out there. and it's and it's early I mean, that was one of I think that's his first uh, published novel. Um, So the next person on the list, number seven, is a really important guy uh, in one particular niche, uh, and he's more of a scientist and less of a um, a popularizer than some of these people. We're talking about Eric Drexler, and he wrote uh, his book uh, in the 80s, right, was when his uh, big book about nanomachines came out. He's the popularizer of the idea that uh, nanoscale engineering is not only possible, but inevitable, and that it's going to enable us to do... Um, you know, really remarkable um, things in terms of what we can build and how a molecular it
1: gets built. scale manufacturing—you know—actually uh, building things uh, at the molecular level. Right. He's uh, actually the coiner of that term, nanotechnology. Yeah, I that, believe that's his yes, term. Yeah, um, which has been used and abused much to the dismay of Drexler himself. Yes. who spends a I, lot of his more recent book uh, trying to dispel some of the confusion, I, and and particularly pushing back against a lot of people have feel that, say, you know, nanotechnology, as he described it, has, quote unquote, failed to live up to the hype.
0: Right. But he, he keeps uh, insisting that it's just, you know, it's branding that's uh, failed. And uh, the things that have been called nanotech haven't been true nanotech. And it hasn't really arrived in many cases. Um, and in some cases, it's actually doing some pretty amazing stuff. I mean, we are doing uh, nanoscale uh, engineering now and some of it is uh, enabling uh, some great progress in various right. things. Materials um, research and chips and different stuff.
1: Right, but he does make the distinction between what he would call material science which he w- is one of those things that he feels like gets confused with right. w- his conception of nanotechnology which is really this much more transformational technology that leads to, you know... Like this-
0: tiny autonomous robots, right? That can self-replicate and uh, create... Uh- different things at the molecular level, right? Isn't that where that leads?
1: I mean, what's the easiest reference? The Star Trek replicator. I mean, like, this is the ultimate end game with this technology is to actually be able to build, treat matter like software. Right, to have a 3D printer that can print essentially anything made of matter. And so that idea is huge. And um, him going on record actually saying, uh, hey, we can do this. Uh, Again, trying to put a roadmap out there. Uh, you know, that's, he, you know, he's a visionary in a sense, he's doing science, but I think, you know, again, like any of these people, it's not like he's going to do this single handedly. He's more just, you know, laying out the possibilities.
0: No, but he was to involved funding in, certain in directions. Yeah. Uh, research at MIT when he wrote uh, his books. I don't, I'm, I don't know if he's still there or not. Um, but, uh, he has some background in this. He's not just wildly speculating. So I think you can take his predictions, um, relatively seriously.
1: Okay, so uh, number eight on the list. And again, this is another one that I argued for that, uh, you know, he's more of a science fiction author, but I, I think he gets cited a lot, and that is David Brin. Right. Um. And the reason he makes the list for me is because of The Transparent Society, which right. is a work of nonfiction that he wrote.
0: Right. This is a work of actual futurism that he did that uh, predicts and really gets right, I think, uh, the coming age of no privacy that's going to be enabled or, you know... um required, basically, by the technologies that we're going to adopt in the near future. That seems likely to happen to me, even barring any kind of singularity or massive uh, expansion of uh, technological capability. Even if we just maintain current rates of growth and capability, we'd, I think, see a a vastly more surveillance-heavy society, no matter what. So uh, the idea that also these things are going to be getting smaller and cheaper makes it Know, basically inevitable that uh, that privacy is going to go away in that sense
1: right I think you know he really shares our view that many of these technologies are inevitable right and that what we we can't really hope to stop them so what we need to do is hope for a relatively equal distribution of the surveillance technology so that uh, we can quote unquote watch the watchers right so that it's not that the surveillance is all concentrated in the hands of, you know, one powerful organization, uh, i say 1984, but that, you know, we distribute this technology and we don't try to get rid of it. We don't try to pretend it doesn't exist, but we kind of accept a certain amount of less privacy and we can hopefully glean some benefits from a society that's more transparent, assuming that some of that, uh, Surveillance is turned back on our systems of power, and it's not just used against the people at large. Uh, and so, you know, that book, what came out in 1998, and uh, you know, yes. I see it referenced all the time. Yeah, and it's just it's more relevant now than than ever before. Yeah, so. it was a
0: really prescient book, and he got that entirely right, I think. Um, so that's a really interesting. Uh, niche that he has. And of course, he writes science fiction that's very speculative and it's about all kinds of different things, uplifting animals and uh, AI and all kinds of things. He's got plenty so, of ideas, but that's the know, one I think
1: that, that uh, helps him make the cut here.
0: Yeah, well, and that stuff's all interesting, but it's not quite as um, groundbreaking or original as as Transparent Society was. Um, so then the next person we want to talk about is a little bit more obscure figure, also from the sort of philosophical side of things. Um, this guy, David Pierce. And uh, the reason that I thought he should be on the list, since he's not quite as well known, is that he has this really interesting idea, which is that it, he basically argues it's ethically um, imperative that we end suffering of all human beings and, in fact, all creatures that we can figure out how to end suffering for. Um, so he talks about this like hedonic imperative of uh, having to, as a species, uh, eliminate pain and suffering, and maybe even sadness.
1: It's kind of like a grand-scale engineering process that we should undertake as a society where we're, you know, making it so that, you know, predators... Like, actually interfering with nature is justified by his vision, you know, where it's like you wouldn't, you know, allow predators to simply just kill prey and accept that as the law of nature. You would actually redesign that situation so that... Uh, They were killing virtual prey or they didn't have the urge to do so. Or you would, I mean, you literally, wherever you could find pain and suffering, you would eradicate it. And uh, if you needed to eradicate it at the level of the brain and brain chemistry, then that's uh, totally an acceptable path by by his logic. Right. And, uh, you know, basically saying, you know, I mean, really asking the question, why should we accept pain? Why shouldn't we just engineer it out of our lives if possible? Right,
0: right. Yeah, and he's a really so that's a really interesting idea and one that we've liked to talk about here on the podcast. We've had a discussion of of these kinds of questions, and so he's I think a really foundational, interesting thinker because um, he questions at a basic level whether suffering is even necessary. You know, and uh, if we have the technology to end suffering, um, regardless of how it might make us feel creepy or how it might make us feel like we're betraying nature or something, we should potentially consider altering the world, uh, to, to get rid of that suffering.
1: Now, I think, you know, it bears mentioning that a lot of his, you know, philosophical grounding comes from the work of Peter Singer. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the author of the idea of the expanding circle. And, uh, right, you know, it's
0: basically a father of like the animal liberation movement and like a lot of, uh, you know, radical, um, pro-animal people uh, ground their work in singers. Or work. just
1: or just this notion that uh, we should extend our, you know, our moral regard to an ever-growing circle of living things. Of living things, right. Uh, and then, you know, that's sort of the logic of history is that we're sort of keep expanding that outwards and, and giving rights and uh, uh, fair treatment to more and more uh, beings over time. And sure. really expanding what it is, you know, what we even consider a a being deserving of of rights and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that philosophical groundwork sort of ex- explains where David Pierce is coming from. But of right. course, David Pierce is much more of the actual futurist here, uh, whereas Peter Singer feels like more like uh, sort of an ethical philosopher.
0: Right. Like Peter Singer grounds a lot of arguments that futurists have made about why you might give robots rights, for example, because they're similar to... Uh, you know, animals in some ways, maybe, but he doesn't really ever get there. And Pierce does. Pierce actually brings it to a futurist place and and talks about, you know, what if we could say alter your brain chemistry or uh, your, um, you know, your genetic makeup to uh, eliminate sadness in your mind. And then, so for our last of our top ten, I wanted to do a slightly out uh, out of the box one. This is a little bit of a reluctant futurist. This person probably wouldn't describe himself as a futurist, unlike I think everyone else on the list. Um, Well, maybe Cory Doctorow wouldn't describe himself that way either, but uh, uh, if pressed, I bet he would. But uh, this guy uh, I think made the single most important prediction of the last hundred years, so I think he's on the list. And of course I'm talking about Gordon Moore, the former chairman of Intel Corporation, who famously predicted that uh, we would double the amount of transistors on a chip every 18 months or so. Back in uh, the late 60s.
1: Right. If you want to talk about sticky ideas, this one <laughs> has stuck. This one has stuck so hard it's now called a law, even
0: though there, it's not really a law by the normal definition of a law, uh, but it, uh, it's called Moore's Law because this observation, this prediction has held true uh, you know, empirically more or less since then, and that's pretty stunning. Uh, that that's been possible so for accuracy.
1: He gets points, major points for accuracy. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, we already talked about both Ray Kurzweil and Hans Moravec. But I mean, you know, Gordon Moore and his success with that much smaller, more limited prediction, uh, again, provides the groundwork for this larger acceleration concept Uh that gets used right. to talk about Hans Moravec
0: couldn't have extrapolated Moore's law without Moore's law, yeah. and then Ray Kurzweil couldn't have repackaged it either. So yeah, it has. You can see a direct line from him to the more uh, well-known
1: futurists that we talked about. So yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, Gordon Moore. Uh, gets put on the list, whether he likes it or not. Right,
0: well, he's you know he's somebody who's more of like a practitioner. He's a private citizen. He worked at a company that made chips, but he saw the future, uh, you know, obviously as it was being built in front of him at that company, and uh, he was able to recognize it. So, um, you know, he gets put on the list. Those are our top ten uh, living futurists. Uh, you might have thought of a few people that you thought should have been on the list that we didn't include. We had a lot of people on the short list, but, you know, ten is a... Finite number. Ten and is a nice
1: number. It's totally we, arbitrary. We did
0: it's arbitrary, but we didn't want to, you know, do eleven. So we we had uh a few runners up. Do you
1: want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean we considered John Smart, uh right. who we've discussed a lot on the podcast, who's mm-hmm. I I'm a big fan of uh his vision of advanced societies actually growing inward, growing smaller over time, which is sort of comes from this Buckminster Fuller ephemeralization idea. Uh, the notion that uh, societies actually compress their time and their space and their usage of energy to right.
0: Where- he almost sort of connects Buckminster Fuller to the Fermi paradox, sort of, and he sort of says like these advanced civilizations that might exist in you know in space. Uh, maybe we don't see them because they turn inward and they become these, you know, simulations. Right, societies. and in a word
1: that's called the Transcension Hypothesis. Right. And he's the author of that if you want to look up that. Yeah. Uh, which so is
0: that's, a, that's cool. It's a little bit more niche than some of the other things we talked about, but it definitely is
1: cool. It felt less broadly influential even though it's such a cool idea. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Robin Hanson is someone we talk about a lot who writes a lot about uh, emulated Emulated Mind. brains
0: mostly, and also a little bit about different economics ideas,
1: but it's also very niche what he talks about as well. it's It's like like he's applying traditional economic reasoning to a particular future scenario of emulated brains. so right, which he I mean, finds
0: plausible for reasons that I think are interesting but are not necessarily broadly um, accepted. And so he he's an interesting guy and definitely something I really like to read. He runs a great uh, blog called um, Overcoming Bias. Uh, that's real fun to read, but I don't know if I would put him on our. You know, we decided not to put him on our top ten list. Um, and he used to run uh, a blog with uh, another guy named Eliezer Yudkowsky, who is the third guy we wanted to. We
1: also p- almost put on the list. Put on the list,
0: but we decided not to. Uh, Yukowski's really interesting and he he uh, writes at uh, Less Wrong now.
1: Well, Less Wrong is more of a community created, uh, I, I don't know, I guess you'd call it a wiki. Uh, there's a lot of he's not the only one on there, but he's he, he has a large he portion has a large of the number major of articles, articles on, on that, that site. Right. Yeah, uh, that's, right. that's his, I think he created that site and he's also like a major figure at, at Miri, the Machine Intelligence Research right. Institute.
0: I would say his ideas
1: overlap a lot with Nick Bostrom. I mean, along with and they've they, even
0: co-written some things, correct? Yeah. yeah.
1: I think along with, and they cite each other. I think mm-hmm. along with Bostrom, they're probably, you know, the main people working on existential risk applied to artificial intelligence.
0: Right, and, and from a very academic, rigorous sort of perspective.
1: Well, actually, I mean, Bostrom's the, the literal academic. Yudkowsky's, right. like, not, sort of exists outside of academia, although he, 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 can, does, he, he can write he, can he stuff as well as anybody. He does have that style,
0: though, I think, yeah. And, I mean, we discovered Yudkowsky, I remember many years ago when we went to the Singularity Summit the first time, right? And Which he, was put on by the
1: Singularity Institute, which is now better known as MIRI, has right. changed its name, but right. yeah.
0: And, uh, and he, he handed out, uh, you know, like a small paper that he had written about uh, existential risks and biases or something. It was like
1: a kind of a primer on like a lot of that Daniel Kahneman right, stuff. And uh, Stanovich stuff. Right, right, exactly. And, but it was so clearly argued, and it was really compelling, and I remember being really impressed by him. He's a very good writer of some of these things and just making complex ideas pretty clear. Yeah,
0: so if you want to nerd out and read some pretty like in-depth stuff about existential risk or about biases or about um, different futurist ideas, he's a great guy to look up. Um, or just about
1: rationality. I mean, I think that's right. one of the things that kind of takes him outside of being a futurist is that the, a large preponderance of his work that you can find online is rationality-based. Right, which, you know, he's funny. He's somebody who, like, felt like, oh, I want to convince people that uh, artificial intelligence is a huge threat to the human species, but no one can really follow what I'm saying because they have all these illogical, you know, assumptions and things, you know, they, they immediately think of Terminator or whatever it is. So he's like, well, I guess I'll go back to basics and first explain to them how to think. Right, right. I think <laughs> his obsession they, yeah. with
0: rationality is a little bit like uh, Larry Lessig uh, leaving um, copyright for corruption. It's like, you know, he got frustrated moving in one direction trying to trying to convince people about, say, existential risks. And then when he looked at, like, well, why is this happening? He found, like this whole other research that's about how, well, people aren't rational. So, (laughs) you know, he said, well, we're going to have to make them rational before we can, you know, convince them of this rational argument. Which is funny to me because it seems... I'm just such a pragmatist, but it's the opposite way I would react to being frustrated about that, which is like, I would probably react in the Ray Kurzweil way, like, we got to market this better. We got to we to make a less rational argument for why this is important so that we can get people to pay attention. I mean, it's
1: ad- <laughs> it feels admirably idealistic, and it is analogous <laughs> to Larry Lessig. Larry Lessig is someone who spent years and years working on copyright issues and trying to reform copyright law and ended up finding that he couldn't get, you know, any good decisions out of the courts and deciding that it was ultimately caused by political corruption and now has dedicated his academic life to solving the issue of political corruption. Right. So it's like you trade one pet issue for an even bigger ground floor issue. Right. But yeah, I mean, you know, that's what, you know, big issues. I mean, let's solve, I mean, we've mentioned a lot of them. I mean, death. Political corruption, human irrationality, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh,
0: sadness. Let's let's solve all those problems. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm impressed
1: by anybody who would dare to to take on some of these issues. Sure. So
0: anyway, those are some big uh, runners up who didn't quite make our list. But uh, you know, write in uh, an email to us or leave a comment. Tell us who we forgot and why we forgot them, and uh, we will come back. And see you next week with another uh, interesting
1: podcast. Yeah, well, and I'll, I'll go ahead and say this: if we get some interesting feedback on uh, people we left off, maybe we'll actually address that. And yeah, it, which is something we haven't d- tried before on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, but it'd, it'd be nice to actually get a conversation going. So yeah,
0: that's a good idea. If uh, if you can if you can really give us one that we should have had, we will own up to it. And if not, we will argue
1: with you. <laughs> right. Well, we have microphones, so but yeah, we'll we'll at least uh, Presumably discuss your idea. You have idea. microphones too, though. True. It's a, it's a whole different world now. Send us an, an audio clip. Maybe we'll use it. No, <laughs> don't do that, actually. Well, I don't know. If it's good.
0: Yeah, I'd consider that. Yeah, okay. Uh, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit ReviewTheFuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture dot com. Thanks for listening.